Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri and this is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount. On this show, we're getting to the bottom of what still holds women back from women who are beating the odds. As much as we want to glamorize sports and see it as entertainment, these are workers and this is a labor force and this is an exploited labor force. And so I feel like through this whole experience, I've gotten a crash course in power dynamics, labor relations, sexism, racism, the whole (laughs) everything. Here to help me introduce this week's episode is my producer, Sari Soffer. So this week, we're talking about women's soccer in the U.S. through the eyes of a former professional player named Kaya McCullough. Kaya played for the Washington Spirit in D.C. from January 2020 to September 2020, eventually leaving after what she describes as months of verbal and emotional abuse by her former coach, Richie Burke. And this summer, the abuse was made public thanks to Kaya coming forward, and her former coach was fired after an investigation by the National Women's Soccer League, or the NWSL. And Kaya's allegations, I think, really reveal so much about how we treat women athletes. Also, how we treat women. And it is a pretty wrenching but also inspiring story when you think about the past few months, because since then... Two other players came out with sexual assault allegations against their former coach at the North Carolina Courage. And there have been mid-match protests on the fields in solidarity with the women who spoke up. But I think at the heart of this is a story that's about the value we place on women and women's sports, the power dynamics at play in the leagues, worker rights, and of course, equal pay. Just to name a few. So let's dive in. Kaya McCullough, welcome to Just Something About Her. Thanks so much for being on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited. I want to start with when we first became aware of your story earlier this summer when there was an article published in the Washington Post where you came forward about abuse from your former coach at the Washington Spirit, Richie Burke. And tell us, walk us through what you revealed in that story. Yeah, so my time at the Spirit was obviously not great. If you've read that article or listened to any of my podcast, you know, I wasn't even really planning on talking about it again, but I was approached by Molly, the author of the article, and she had kind of come to me and was like, I just kind of heard a situation that happened at the club and kind of just wanted to get my opinion about it. And from there, I kind of word vomited everything that happened to me. It was the first time I had talked about it to anybody besides my parents and family or my therapist. But basically what I divulged was that there was this really horrible culture of 
intimidation and bullying and psychological abuse happening, verbal abuse happening to players while I was there and I'm sure before I was there and also some very racially insensitive incidents that happened while I was there, me being a black woman, which felt very targeted. Yeah, there was one incident in particular that really stood out for me was after George Floyd was killed. I think you all were taking a picture where the team, when you were kneeling, tell us what happened there just to give people a sense of the kind of racial jokes that we're talking about. Yeah, so it was right after George Floyd was, you know, put on display for the world to see. And Mm -hmm. teams in the league were trying to show solidarity in whatever way they could. And my team was like, oh, we're going to take a picture to, you know, show our support with the Black Lives Matter movement. We're all going to be kneeling, which is a whole other conversation. But my coach made the joke around me and a couple other people like we had these practice dummies that were like these huge white blow up things that you know we would use for passing patterns and he made the joke that we should put it on the ground and like kneel on it yeah and that's the kind of insidious nature of i think the treatment that was happening while i was at the spirit and in general i think how a lot of microaggressions come to fruition when we're talking about some of the more covert racism that's really prevalent Mm -hmm. in 2021. It honestly shocked me. I literally was like, did he just say that? It is shocking. Yeah. And even if it's like meant to be a joke, it's not funny. I wasn't laughing. My mouth probably was left wide open. I have a very hard time hiding emotions on my face and I was just like, me too. <laughs> no game face. I have no game face. It's okay. You know, it, it's it's revealing what you feel. So you should probably say it. The thing about that, though, is the whole culture was like, you were so intimidated that you couldn't say anything. So right. <laughs> I'm sure it was said on my face, but actually speaking up like as a rookie was not on my agenda. I wanted to keep my job. <laughs> Right. That's that's the situation that you put in. So you um, you were drafted by the spirit in January of 2020. And you said that the abuse started almost immediately, mostly to the less experienced players, which that's very telling to me that the coach picks on the less experienced players. And you said that you could only describe it as feeling personal. What do you mean by that? And how did it change the way that you felt about yourself and the sport? It was targeted at people who were on the lower half of the team, who were in more vulnerable positions, who were more expendable. Because I feel like we had more to prove. We had more to lose. Our contracts weren't really super secure, which I think, you know, when you look at patterns of abusers across relationships, whether in the workplace or familial or romantic relationships. That's how they function. They feed on you and they feed on your fear and they feed on your lack of power. In regards to it being personal, you know, he would pick one person for a practice and would just kind of berate them the whole time. Like it was just this constant, like when when somebody hones in on you and won't stop and won't let up, that's what makes it feel personal. In that Watchmen story, there were other players who corroborated what you said, but you were the only player that actually went on the record. Was that a conscious decision for you to do that? Why did you decide to do that? It was a conscious decision. I knew that some players were still playing and didn't want to risk jeopardizing their careers 
for fear of retaliation. Sure. I knew that, you know, my path has kind of gone in a different direction. So I really had nothing to lose and everything to gain by being able to make sure that justice was served, I guess. Because, mm-hmm. again, the whole reason that the article was being created was because an incident did happen that really put a player in harm's way because of the same sort of treatment. Can you say what this incident was that another player endured? I don't know how public that is. Okay. Just an instance of like him bullying somebody to the point of like it being very, very harmful is what I'll say about it. There was another bombshell story about the league with a former North Carolina Courage coach, Paul Riley, was uh, leveraging his position of authority to lure players into his bed, to coerce them into sex, to force women to kiss each other for his viewing pleasure. You know, and he was fired along with the commissioner. The abuse that's been revealed sort of league-wide is pretty stunning. Yeah, this is a pervasive issue, not only in this particular league, but in the sport and in women's sports, as we've seen over and over and over and over again. And I think that's why, you know, a lot of people are calling for these really strong no-tolerance policies for abuse or people who enabled abuse. And I think that's a way forward because how do you trust people who created a system that was so corrupt? How do you trust those people to reform that system if they've already messed it up once? So there are 10 teams in the National Women's Soccer League and only two are coached by women. One of those is an interim coach. That's what we refer to as a glass cliff situation where you put a woman in a job to do the job, but you don't fully empower her. But that's that's a different subject. <laughs> and then I you know, the Washington Spirits coach was fired because of the allegations you and others made about his abusive behavior. After an investigation. After an investigation. Yeah, that's important to know. Important to know. You have said that at the end of the day, I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about men coaching non-men. It automatically creates this power dynamic. He can quite literally control their contracts, their living, their apartment, their paychecks, their food. Share some of those, what those thoughts and feelings are. Obviously, the solution isn't going to be just hiring more women or non-men coaches. Obviously, women in power can be just as corrupt. Non-men in power can be just as corrupt. True. However. Although usually not. (laughs) Yeah. Big emphasis on the however. In, you know, my time, my experiences, I can only speak for my experiences, the situations were... I've had a male coach instantly creates a different dynamic because we live in this white supremacist patriarchal society. That power dynamic is automatically going to translate over to sport. And then on top of that already existing power structure, then give men more power to then basically have unilateral control over the lives of women and non-men. It can corrupt. Power can corrupt. And this coach is an older coach. It's like, this has been tolerated in his career, accepted in his career for decades. Yeah, I had a lot of people message me privately on Twitter, on Instagram, through email, basically saying that he coached them when they were like youth players in high school and it was the same exact thing and that they were still kind of dealing with some of the repercussions of being treated like that. And so part of this process and part of this healing process was recognizing the fact that like I wasn't making this up. I wasn't lying. Like I was gaslighting myself for a year. 
And I know on your podcast, Unfiltered, you had an episode where you talked about the abuse and the story at length, and you talked about how the abuse created a hierarchy on the team between the newbies and those who were the star players. And you said this, what I thought was really profound. People in power rely on lack of solidarity in order to maintain power. I think if you could point to one factor that I think holds women back, it's pitting women against each other. You know, not just in sports, I think that's just true overall, like the sense that female success is a finite resource that only a certain number of them can survive. And no, nobody thinks that about white men pitting women against each other. How did that play out in, in the field, in the locker room? It's interesting that you say that because I feel like in a lot of ways, sports are a microcosm for society. And a lot of the values that we see reflected in sports are a direct result or a direct mirror of where we are as a society. And so I feel like through this whole experience, I've gotten a crash course in power dynamics, labor relations, yes, uh, sexism, racism, like the whole <laughs> everything. But being able to look back and see the divide that was kind of created inherently through this treatment, through no fault of our own as players, just based on how we were perceived and treated by this coach with a lot of power. It's really interesting. And I described it as a hierarchy and it wasn't necessarily like anybody was treating each other differently. Everybody was friends on the team for the most part. And I wouldn't say that there was like a direct, like personal kind of tension between people on the team off the field, but on the field, it certainly was just known that those that were you know, in the top 14 people, top 13 people, like, weren't going to get the same treatment. And I think that sort of inherently created, again, this tension that was really hard to get past. And in terms of solidarity, it's hard to trust people who see bad things happening to you or happening to others, and then who don't stand up for you or who don't do anything about it and again whether or not that's their fault or not like I'm not going to be the judge of that but in me personally I can't speak to everybody but you know how am I going to be able to be a supportive teammate if I don't feel like I can depend on these people to take care of me or my livelihood or I can't depend on these people to have my back when I need it I think it it definitely created a lot of weird dynamics, for lack of a better word. Have you seen the flip side of that with the solidarity that you've experienced since coming forward with these allegations against your coach? I know that, you know, a lot of people have come forward publicly, a lot of other players some pretty famous players to support you and back you up. Yeah, I mean, it's great now to see solidarity. I guess that goes into bigger questions about what kind of solidarity is meaningful and whether it's true and genuine, if it's only solidarity that happens after the fact, what does that say about it? Those are some of the questions that I've been pondering. I, I do think it's much bigger than just, you know, whether or not I feel supported, because I do. But at the same time, I can't help but feel betrayed in a lot of ways. I shouldn't have had to suffer in order to get support from people. I shouldn't have had to quit to get support from people. People should have been standing up anyways. And it's sometimes hard to not feel resentful about it. But, you know, looking at the bigger picture and realizing that now that there is a solid foundation of solidarity in place, we are going to be able to move forward a lot quicker, a lot stronger, a lot more efficiently. So 
it's kind of a mixed bag of feelings for me. How did you feel when you got off the phone with Molly, the reporter, after having revealed all this and finally said it publicly, things that you'd only shared privately before? I'm pretty sure I cried. I cried a lot, like, in this kind of process of coming forward, being asked specific questions and having to recall certain instances that I honestly had mostly forgotten about for self-preservation reasons Mm -hmm. was really triggering. And at the same time, it was also very empowering because it was me being able to own my truth and to take control back and take power back from something that felt like had been stolen from me. Soccer felt like it had been stolen from me, but to be able to reclaim my own story was a really empowering thing. So I think it was kind of a mixed bag. And I'm still kind of going through waves of that right now. And it's tragic because it's like a sport that you love so much. And like, yeah, I mean, I played for 18 years since I was five. And my identity was really wrapped up in being a soccer player. So having to step away from that for basically mental health reasons (laughs) was difficult. But I don't regret it at all. And I'm in a much better place. And I feel like I'm able to affect change in a much more powerful and potent way now that I'm outside of the sphere of influence of the sport, because there is the fear of retaliation. There is the fear of being cut. There is the fear of not being able to say certain things because you're tied to this organization. So yeah, (laughs) I feel like being able to go rogue essentially was my saving grace in terms of my advocacy and my activism. First of all, thank you for sharing all that, Kaya. After a quick break, I want to talk more about mental health and the expectations we have for athletes, especially women and people of color. That's next with former pro soccer player Kaya McCullough on Just Something About Her. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And we're back to just something about her with former pro soccer player Kaya McCullough, who was just telling us about the mental and emotional abuse she endured from her former coach at the Washington Spirit, who was fired after Kaya came forward in a Washington Post article. And one of the allegations you made against this former coach is that he was racially abusive to you and the only other black player on your team. And you described in your podcast what that felt like. And I think this is one of the best descriptions I've heard of this. You said, at the end of the day, they're microaggressions. It's hard to explain if you're not a minority when you're in a space where you feel like your value as a human is being joked about. Yeah. I mean, it's tough because... Those sorts of things, especially when 
you've been hearing them your entire life and you've been hearing people joke about you and your culture and your family and when people are making light of all the trauma that you and your family and your generations and generations of ancestors have suffered for the sake of a joke it's very belittling it's very hurtful and you know that word doesn't do it justice but I think again it's hard to kind of describe that feeling if you aren't a racial minority if you're not a minority in this society that we have and like then a lot of times with microaggressions I feel like gaslighting kind of accompanies it so you're like well you're just making a big deal out of it nothing like I didn't mean it like that so then the, the blame is then put back onto you for feeling a certain type of way about it I think it's a really complex and I like the word insidious form of racism And I think in today's age, it's a much more common one. I mean, there are people, but (laughs) the overt racism of the past is a lot less common, I feel, in most instances, especially in the workplace, especially in these more formal settings. So I think the way in which these microaggressions and these more covert forms of racism have kind of slithered their way into our culture in a way that is really harmful to people of color and especially black people. So it was definitely interesting having to to deal with that and act like it didn't bother me on the surface as to not make waves, as to not lose my contract, (laughs) as to keep my living. (laughs) Again, I did not process a lot of this for a while. I ended up leaving Washington to immediately go to Germany, try and salvage my love for the game. Kind of had a bad situation when in Germany in terms of like playing conditions and was just really unhappy. And with the lockdown, my mental health kind of spiraled and I was definitely going towards a serious depression. And so that was the point where I was kind of just like, you need to walk away for a little bit. I got an amazing therapist. Just being around my family was also an amazing form of therapy for me. And as I gained my power back, because in a lot of ways I felt like for the first time in my life, my power had sort of been taken from me. And I hate even saying it like that because nobody can take your power from you. But seems to go against your like very being just who you are to say that. Yeah. I can see that's tough for you. Yeah. I just kind of had to pick up the pieces. And now that I have my power back, I refuse to ever let it leave me again, and I'm just happy to be able to speak truth to power and allow other people to kind of find their inner strength because I I know what it's like to feel like you don't have any. Your story definitely brings to mind stories of Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka. What did it feel like for you watching their journeys this past summer? I was so happy for them. I was so proud of them because, you know, obviously not to their level, but being an elite athlete is a really, really difficult job. And being a woman on top of that and being a black woman on top of that, that intersection is a really, really intense one. And on top of them being black women, being dark-skinned black women. So, you know, you have colorism, you have sexism, you have racism. Just the fact that they are at the top of their game, the elite of the elites, they're already being extra scrutinized Mm -hmm. in a world that doesn't like seeing black women succeed. I don't even know them, but 
I, I couldn't help but feel so much relief for them and so much pride that they were able to prioritize their mental health in a way that was productive for them and in a way that was healing for them. And again, we don't know the whole story, but even just to be able to witness a glimpse of that was a really empowering thing for me. And it kind of reaffirmed that I made the right choice for me. And I just wish nothing but peace to them because I saw how much better my life got when I prioritized my mental health, how much happier I am now, how many more opportunities I have how much more fulfilled I am. And it all started with a decision to prioritize myself. These things don't happen in a vacuum, right? You endured what you endured and then you had enough and took yourself out of the situation and then spoke up about it. Simone Biles, the same. I mean, watching Simone Biles testify in front of that congressional hearing on the sexual abuse from her coach, just one of the bravest, most moving things I've seen all year. But just now hearing you talk about it, it's like I hear light in your voice. You know, you see like this is making a difference for people. A lot of people told me, like my therapist and my, and my mom and my dad, like you cannot help others if you're not helping yourself first. If you're not full, how are you expected to be able to pour water into other people's glasses? And so thinking about my life and how I want to be an advocate for others and how I want to continue to pursue a path of activism for social justice. I knew that if I ran myself ragged, I would not be able to help anybody else. So while it was for me and it, while it was deciding to heal myself, it also was looking forward and knowing that for the work that I want to do, I needed to get myself to a good place. I want to ask you about the Black Women's Players Collective. So first of all, just note to the audience that 2021 was a record year for recruiting Black women in, in the NWSL, six of the top 10 picks. But just a decade ago, the 2011 World Cup team fielded just one Black woman. So tell us about the Black Women Players Collective and what that organization is asking of the NWSL. They're doing really incredible work and it really formed out of the need for a safe space for black players within the league in the midst of all the turmoil of 2020, the COVID pandemic, the sort of racial reckoning that happened with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. There really wasn't a lot of resources for black players in the league to deal with this. Again, I was being asked at practice to you know, leave all that stuff off the field and just focus on playing when, you know, when you're black in America, that's not something you can do. You can't, you know, just magically erase the trauma for the sake of performing some sort of job. You know, if that was happening to me, I can imagine the exact same thing was happening to others. And in terms of the work that they're doing now, really just creating more access for young black players, creating more representation or more visible representation for young black players and for black players across the globe and a sport that is predominantly white. You know, growing up, I didn't really have very many black players to look up to. There are a few, but even then they weren't celebrated or glorified in the same way that many white players were. And they were just as instrumental in building the sport. So to see that black women in the league are reclaiming their power and rewriting the narrative about what it means to be a black female soccer player is a really cool thing to witness, a cool thing to be a part of. 
All right, time for one last quick break to pay the bills. And then we're going to talk about another type of collective, a union, and how the NWSL is joining the AFL-CIO, the largest federation of unions in the United States, to try and repair some of the harmful power dynamics Kaya has been talking about. That's after the break on Just Something About Her. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we're back to Jessica About Her with former professional soccer player Kaya McCullough, who recently quit the NWSL after experiencing abuse by her former coach. I want to talk about pay equity and unionizing. Big one. Yeah. It's interesting. The American public's support of unions is at a record high right now. I think it's a reflection of low pay and difficult working standards across the board and professions almost everywhere. Yeah. So, you know, one of the points that you made was that when you were on Spirit, it was difficult because, like, your livelihood uh, depended on your very meager salary there. And so that makes you particularly vulnerable to, like, the kinds of abuse from coaches. So I want to talk about how pay actually affects your safety and security in the sport and start with some of the pretty appalling uh, statistics about pay at the NWSL. Its minimum payer salary is 22000 and its maximum player salary is $52,500 for the 2021 season. The NWSL Players Association estimates that a third of their player association members make the league's minimum salary, $22,000, and about 75% make $31,000 or less. And to contrast this with how men are paid, the average player in Major League Soccer earns $398,725 for the 2021 season season. Can you tell us what you're making when you're hired as a new player for the Washington Spirit? Yeah, the minimum salary plus they pay for your apartment, but still very, very meager. Still, <laughs> it's like $20,000, particularly in the cost of living in Washington, D.C. So how salaries, as I understand, the salaries of the NWSL work is that each team is allotted a certain amount of money to divvy up amongst its players. It's like, talk about pitting people against each other. Yeah, no, I I don't fully honestly understand how everything works with the salary cap in the league, but I, I do know that most players aren't making a lot of money unless you're like a national team player who then I think are paid by U.S. soccer and not the league most of the time. Right, but the point is it's a very difficult 
salary to live on and it means that there is no cushion for you. You can't quit and expect to live off of the you know savings that you've accrued. You're very susceptible then to just having to tolerate abuse. I know that the National Women's Soccer League Players Association launched the No More Side Hustles campaign yeah. to grow awareness about low salaries and how women had to work multiple separate jobs. Did you and some of your teammates have to do this, have to do side hustles? I know some of my teammates did while I was there. I didn't because I was a rookie and just trying to focus on finding my footing, mm-hmm. especially with everything going on. And then, you know, COVID kind of hit. So it was kind of a different year where you couldn't really do anything. So a lot of players coach for extra money. Oh, right. And you think about too, like most players who have worked through high school and college and then now professional and who have only been able to commit time to playing your sport. I know in college, we weren't really allowed to have a job outside of training and outside of our sport because it affected our training hours. Most people in this workforce don't have outside experience to get jobs that are more traditional like corporate or nine to five jobs without some extra help with internships or extra education. So like even I was joking about how I'm applying to law school and my resume is so thin just because my whole life has been kind of committed to coaching and to playing. Yeah. So it's a very disempowering system, you know, having to do all the work that you do to get to this professional level. When you look at like the men's side, somebody who works their whole life to play football or somebody who works their whole life to play basketball or soccer, they don't have to do an extra job. They don't need extra experience in the workforce to be able to sustain themselves. I mean, you've identified sort of two problems there. One is the sport requires so much of you that you can't develop professionally in the other manner to actually get a good paying job that would allow you to supplement your soccer income. And then when you are done playing, you have to earn a living. You know, I'm reminded of the Abby Wambach story where she is honored at an ESPN dinner alongside of Kobe Bryant and Peyton Manning. And they're honoring the three of them as like being the best ever in their sports. And, you know, she's like, Peyton Manning is you know, more than set for life. And I got to figure out how to pay my mortgage. So that just puts women's sports in this perpetuates a sort of second class status. And I'm interested in your take about like this. I always hear this argument when I complain on Twitter, which, you know, has a really big impact. It's like really meaningful. (laughs) When I complain on Twitter about, you know, and women's soccer is the best example because the women's national team is so good. It's pointed out to me, usually by men, that the problem is that the men's sports bring in more money than the women's sports do. And I was like, yes, I am aware that we built the market to value men's efforts over women's. I know that we've been indoctrinated over the course of all of human history, uh, sent signals every single day that men are more, uh, are to be valued more than women. And that reveals itself in how much money women's sports brings in versus men's sports. But what's your, what's your response to that? I think you put it very, very well. Like you have to look at these larger systems in play because I think it's foolish to say that women's sports don't have the earning potential, like investing in women's sports 
is not something that's just going to financially drain resources if we put equal amount of resources into it. Yeah, at college, start with college, right? Start with high school. Yeah, I think viewership for, you know, the NWSL for the WNBA has skyrocketed in the past year and Yeah. So I think it's remiss to say that, you know, investing in women's sports just isn't going to earn money. I think exactly what you said, we have for how many years put the value of men's sports over women's sports and created this narrative that, you know, women's sports are less entertaining, women's sports are less fun, women's sports are less cool. So, of course, that's what's going to reflect in our cultural consciousness <laughs> of course right. that's how it's going to be yeah and it's and it's, it is changing i mean like you said like the the stat on what you said is it's 500 percent. the players association says that viewership of the nwsl is up almost 500 percent in the last year and the league has affiliated with the afl cio do you have a sense that unions could be an answer here definitely i think you know the pa is negotiating their first collective bargaining agreement with the league which i think is going to be a big step because when you think about everything that happens like there was not an anti-harassment policy in place when i was playing which is only a year ago so (laughs) like these are basic sort of protections that you need to have in place because at the end of the day like as much as we want to glamorize sports and see it as entertainment these are workers and this is a labor force and this is an exploited labor force and exploited labor forces need unions and so going back to kind of what i said i feel like i had this crash course in labor relations and yeah <laughs> gender equity racism sexism so yeah definitely in a year all in a year i know crash course 101 just you know play professional sports kids that's how you learn but yeah, I, I do think it would, you know, be beneficial. And again, I'm still learning. I'm I'm only 23. So, you know, we're not really taught about unions in high school in our education system. No, no, not not definitely not. I know you gave up playing soccer, but now you're coaching, which I was happy to hear about. Do you have a sense of what you see for your future with the sport and beyond it? No, I'm still figuring that out. I love coaching now because I'm able to see the joy on the faces of kids who still, you know, have yet to be harmed in the same way that I have by the sport. So it's a good reclamation of my love for the sport. And it's coming back slowly. I know it's not going to be an overnight process, but right after I quit, I didn't touch a soccer ball for at least four months. Mm. Probably the first four months since you were like a toddler, right? Yeah. (laughs) No, seriously, really, really long time. But I do envision myself staying close to the sport and connected into the sport. I'm hoping I have kids that want to play soccer so I can be an AYSO coach or, (laughs) I don't know, just a really overly enthusiastic soccer mom. (laughs) But outside of that, you know, I'm applying to law school and I'm hoping that I can continue to affect change that way. So I think, you know, everything happens for a reason and Mm -hmm. I'm on the path that I'm on now and I'm continuing on healing. I think it's great that you're going to go to law school. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Yeah, you got to get in all that business. But I do hope you pause every now and then to appreciate that you you took the time you needed, you got healthy, and then you brought a lot of justice and solidarity to the sport that was lacking in it. You know, it's just a huge accomplishment. You're well, well on your way. Thanks. Yeah, it's sometimes hard to sit and pause, 
given everything that's happened in the past year or so, but every now and then I, you know, I look back and I'm really proud of the person I am today. I want to be the person I wish I had in my corner when I was going through all of this. So I try to be mindful of it, but there's a lot going on most of the time. <laughs> right. Thank you for doing this. It's been really great to talk with you. Thanks for having me. This has been amazing. Sarah, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. One thing that I just want to emphasize again is how important it is. You know, she left soccer, kind of got away from that environment, you know, just like every day walking into a pretty toxic place where she's subjected to different kinds of abuse. And it was like after she came out of that, was able to look at it more objectively, that then she spoke out. Yeah. Right. I did just want to add one more thing, actually, um, that we didn't get to mention in the interview. Yeah. On the same team, the Washington Spirit, there had been this story that was kind of swept under the rug about their assistant coach named Tom Torres. It came out that he had sexually harassed some of the players on the team after a night of drinking. He was fired after a few women complained directly after that incident. But when they let him go, it was publicly said that he left to pursue other things. Right. It was not revealed. The actual reason was not revealed. Exactly. And he was Burke's sidekick, the coach that was fired for this abuse. And it just, I feel like, shows you how these are like systems and webs of protection yeah. that these organizations prioritize. You know, the NWSL was much more concerned with its image than women's safety because, fast forward, Tom Torres is back coaching girls' soccer. So, um, yeah. yeah, I think yeah. that just shows you like that these are not just uh, individual incidents, but actually like systems that hold this power in place. I could also hear this in her voice is like kind of resentful that how easily it all toppled. You know, she, that's the outcome that she wanted, but also just how much was tolerated and how all the people who were in power then like ran away as soon as it became public. Yeah, I think it was a good thing to remind us all to when after the fact we come out in solidarity with any movement, with any person to ask ourselves where we were before that was revealed. We won't always be clued into what's going on in the moment. We won't always, you know, have these revelations in the moment moment either, but it is a good kind of practice to ask yourself, could I have done something sooner? Could I have spoke up sooner when it wasn't so easy? To realize the power of your own voice, particularly exactly. when you like work in solidarity to others, yep. which is cool about the Black Women's Players Collective. Cool. I'm really glad we had her on and I'm really glad we talked about women's soccer finally. <laughs> yeah, I know. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount. Thank you to Kaya McCullough for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. D. Scott Carroll and Logan Romju engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. And Sari Soffer is our producer. <laughs>